It is the beginning of the Christmas season as we celebrate this time of year. And I don't know about you, there are lots of things that I love about the Christmas season. Maybe in the comments there, if you're on Facebook or or YouTube, that you can put down some of your favorite things about it. And let's all just give the giving away, all right? We know the best thing about Christmas is Jesus, all right? And so he's the reason for the season. But what are the periphery things or the things around the celebration of the birth of Christ that you enjoy the most? The food or the decorations, we've got our tree up and we've got all of that in the house and love that kind of festive spirit that's there. One of my favorites is the music that comes along with it. I love Christmas music. I am one of those that generally waits until the day after Thanksgiving to start Christmas music. I know this year in particular, lots of people that were pre-Thanksgiving Christmas music people, and that's okay. I won't judge you. Others will, but I won't, all right, if that's who you are. If you're pre-Thanksgiving Christmas, I even saw some pastors starting Advent series two weeks ago. Like, we just need Christmas. There's that song, we need a little Christmas. We need Christmas right now in the midst of all that we're doing. But Friday came, and it was time for us to think about putting up the decorations and all of that. And so we we got our Christmas, our Spotify Christmas 20, 20 playlist ready. We hit shuffle play on that. And one of the first songs that came out was the voice of the crooner, Andy Williams, singing, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Now, he says some things in there that aren't quite as relevant as they used to be, kids jingle belling and other things that are happening that that seem a little from a different era. Maybe it's an era that some of us long to go back to or this nostalgia that's there. But we think about this time of year and we do think, man, it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. It's supposed to be celebrating with family, with a tree up and gifts under the tree and parties filled with families and friends and unique moments of enchantment that happen during the holiday season. But the truth is, even in years without a global pandemic, Reality usually sets in at some point in this process. Those gifts that are circling the tree come with a credit card bill in January. And families and spending time together as a family isn't always as idyllic as we imagine it to be. Disagreements set in. Some people can't make it because of reasons or decide not to make it for other reasons. And those moments of enchantment, they don't really necessarily happen. The Gingerbread building contest with the family turns into a sloppy mess that everybody's frustrated because the walls won't stand up. And in those moments, these enchantment moments just turn into a blur of school projects and finals and movies and music and all of that just kind of melds together. And it seems like that oftentimes we aim for Norman Rockwell and end up with Clark Griswold. And as we think through that, when you add in this year the unknown of a global pandemic, we are going to have an Advent season unlike any other in history. Just like we had a Thanksgiving for many of us, unlike any other that we can remember, our Christmas season is going to be the same. And as over the last few months, as I've been planning and praying and thinking through this particular moment, thinking through what we're going to do as a church moving through this Christmas season, there was one word that kept coming back to me that we as a people need joy. Now one of those words, we talk about hope, which we did in the Advent moment today, and peace, 
One of those kind of words for this season is joy. And part of that joy for me does come through the music, which is something that goes back to the first Christmas. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are four songs in the book of Luke centering around the birth of Jesus. And so over the next four weeks, starting today and moving to the week before Christmas, we're going to look at each of those songs and see how they can help bring joy to our lives. And we're going to start today with Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. Now let me just say to you today that normally in Christmas, and who knows what this year will bring, Christmas is a time of travel. It's a time to load up the car with the kids and the pets and the gifts and take off on a trip to grandmas or granddads or to see family and friends. And we usually do that. And traveling has also been a part of Christmas since the very first one. We know that Mary took at least two trips before Jesus was born and then another trip afterwards. And we're not really we'll talk a little bit about one of those trips today. But in primarily what I want to do today is talk about a trip that Mary took internally. Because for her, there was a journey that took place where she had to understand what was going on around her and move to a place to be able to sing this particular song. Some have called Luke chapter 1 verses 46 and following the first Christmas carol. Some just see it kind of as the a moment of a teenage girl's journal writing about a significant moment in her life. But it has so much more than that. Luke places this particular song, this hymn, right in the midst of a moment to declare the importance of what is happening. There are a multitude, more than we'll have time to even talk about today, of allusions to the Old Testament and that promise of a coming Savior that they had been longing for, they had been praying for, they had been wishing for, they had been seeking, embedded in Mary's song. But overall, it's a song of praise. In fact, it's not even going to be on the screen. Just reading the first words of it, though, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. That's how she starts this song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Gives praise to, declares the glory of, honors the Lord. But in order to understand the song, we need to understand the circumstance. And that's where the journey comes in. So I told you to turn to Luke chapter 1 verse 46. That's where we are going to be eventually. But it's going to take us a moment to get there because I want to remind us of what she had been through in the process. Starting in Luke chapter 1, we're going to see that before we ever get to the Magnificat, before we ever get to the my soul magnifies the Lord moment, we see a serious moment of anxiety. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Verse 29. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. 
The first moment we have, this angel, Gabriel, the, the messenger of God, comes to her, a virgin engaged to a man of Joseph in the house of David. Her name was Mary, calls her favored and says, the Lord is with you. And it says she is deeply troubled. By the way, that's the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. And it declares the intensity of her unrest. Before this, we're going to talk about Zechariah's song next week a little bit. And before this, there's some discussion about him and the troubling aspects of his life. There are other parts in Scripture where people have anxiety or trouble. But this particular word, this particular word is the strongest word used for the trouble that is stirred up inside of someone that we have. She is deeply troubled. And then the angel says, but, but don't worry about it. Verse 30 says, the angel told her, don't be afraid, Mary. By the way, we know that in Scripture, when an angel appears, they are not cute and cuddly and fluffy. They are terrifying. And so she says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And what she expected next was not what came. I can guarantee that. I don't know what Mary expected to come out of the, the angel's mouth next. I don't have any clue what she thought. What could this be about? You know, like when you get called to, to your boss's office or to the principal's office or, hey, can we have a conversation for a minute? And you begin to run through all the possibilities in your mind. I can almost guarantee that what came out of the angel's mouth next was not what Mary expected. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his David, father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary just asked a very simple question. How can this be? For I'm a virgin, not had sexual relations with a man. So here's the first stage that Mary has in this whole story is that she experiences anxiety she is deeply troubled she is intensely feeling this anxiety in her life you ask the question why is she so anxious well there are a couple of reasons that are pretty obvious here one is that an angel is talking to her that is not an everyday occurrence. And secondly, the angel has told her something that is going to radically transform her life. And in their society, not for the better. For sure. She found out that she was about to be pregnant with no husband in a culture where such a violation could be met not with just shame and scorn, but with physical death. Adultery, which that would have been considered in their time to go outside the bonds of marriage with Joseph or even beforehand with Joseph, would have been considered punishable for the woman by death. She understands that her fiancé, who we don't know her personal feelings about this, sometimes they were, they were arranged marriages. We know that by the time they get to that moment when Jesus is born, they are a fully formed couple and everything seems to be great. But at this moment, we don't even know the extent of their relationship other than they're betrothed to each other. But the reality is she thinks in her mind, he's gone. We know she's already poor. And so there's this humble, lowly teenage girl who had imagined a normal life for herself 
following the Lord's commands, whose life is completely turned upside down. She sees a future of financial insolvency, a ruined reputation with the most important relationship in her life falling apart, a baby to take care of if she even lives. And none of it was because of something she did. She was walking literally into the unknown. I was reminded this week about something that I love, about the stories of map makers, cartographers of old, before the world had such um, the ability to see every detail of the world, before you could get on Google Maps and zoom in on your house and see what day they took the picture and where your cars are. Before that moment, when you had to make maps and you had to figure it out without drones and satellites and all of that, when there was some part off the edge of the map that no one had explored yet, sometimes the cartographers would write out there either a drawing or they would write these words, Beyond here, there be dragons. Like, we don't know what's there, but it ain't good. Mary, in this moment, is in dragon territory. She is beyond the edge of any known map. She has ventured into the unknown. Now, the reality is she's ventured into the unknown of history because she doesn't know what's about to happen. This has never happened to anyone before. But in her personal life, just on a personal level, she has an unknown future. And maybe you are in a similar place today. Facing the unknown. Something you did not expect. Something you didn't want. Something you didn't plan for. Financial hardship or grief or loss or divorce or illness or job loss or career change. Movement. Maybe it's the unknown of a family situation, of children. Perhaps the ability to have children or maybe perhaps the the ability for your children to come back to the Lord. They've walked away. Maybe it's your own spiritual life that feels as if you're in unknown territory. If you could put the map out of your life right now, you would be in dragon territory. Beyond the edge of what you know. And that can lead to moments of anxiety. Here's what I want you to notice about the journey that Mary takes. She starts with anxiety, but she moves from there fairly quickly, just to be honest. So she says... How can this be? And we don't have these up on the screen, but the angel basically says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to conceive and you're going to have a child and it's going to be the Savior of the world, basically, the Son of God. And then he ends with this phrase that is something for all of us to be reminded of. For nothing will be impossible with God. And here's what I love about the story of Mary. On this journey that she's taken inwardly, she moves from anxiety to acceptance. Look at verse 38. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now again, this is where I wish there were stage directions or this is where we could actually 
peer into that moment that God gave us a glimpse into that moment, a video of that moment when we could see her reaction at this moment. One of the big kind of new genres on YouTube are reaction videos, reactions to old songs or to current TV shows or to surprising twists in movies. And seeing people's immediate reaction to something has become this ability to, to discern how we should feel about it. And so I wish that in some way we had a reaction video of Mary when the angel Gabriel tells her all this and she says this phrase, let it be unto me as it has been said. Because I want to know, was that a, all right, whatever, like you're the Lord, God can do anything, absolutely trust that. Or was that, let it be unto me. See, my general feeling is that it was just simple acceptance. And simple acceptance isn't always joyous. It's not always with wild enthusiasm. Sometimes it's just, okay, I give up. I just, I relent. Okay, fine, fine. It's a positive step. It's not the final step, but it's a positive step. God wants our obedience. God wants us to do what he's asked us to do. Now, ideally, we do that with a great heart and a great spirit and a great attitude. But the first step is just to do what God has asked us to do. And so Mary in this moment moves from anxiety. How is that going to be? What's it going to work? Can you give me the details? What's that going to mean for my life? I don't have a clue. I'm in dragon territory to... Okay, Lord, I'm good with it. Let it be unto me as you have said. I accept it. There are two requirements for us to get to this phase of our lives in our calling with the Lord in any situation we find ourselves in. And the first is that we have to have faith. We have to trust in the goodness and the power of God. We have to trust that what the angel says in verse 37 is true. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Over the last 13 years or so around here as I've been your pastor, we've talked about the the word all a lot, that all means all. And if I ask that question and we actually have people in the sanctuary and I say, what does the word all mean? I get a pretty good response of all back. But here's the truth. The same is true of the word nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Don't don't add a a but or an or or except in that phrase. Nothing means nothing. And he's saying to Mary, this is what's going to happen. And as outrageous as it may sound, nothing is impossible with God. There are no situations of true hopelessness for believers in Jesus Christ that are trusting the Lord in their situation. Nothing is impossible. We trust in the power and the glory and the majesty of God and the power of God. But more than that, we trust in God's goodness that what he does is he cares about us and he wants what's best for us. And so Mary gets from that place of, okay, God, I don't understand this. I'm worried about it. I am deeply troubled by it, but I don't understand how it's going to happen, but I'm accepting it. The second thing is required not only faith in the goodness and the power of God, but also just a complete surrender of our lives to His will. We completely surrender our lives to His will. 
We realize again that life is not about me. Life is not about my interests. Life is not about my fulfillment or my reputation. That life ultimately is about the reputation and the glory of God. The spread of His kingdom. And whatever part that I have to play in glorifying the Father and extending His kingdom, I accept that role whether I would have chosen it on my own or not. And here's the reality. Most of the time in life, what God calls us to do are not things we would have chosen on our own. He's going to stretch us and pull us and get us uncomfortable so that when He works through us, His glory is revealed. Now, after hearing this, he has, the angel tells her about Elizabeth, her cousin, your relative, Elizabeth, that she's conceived in her old age. And we'll talk about that story a little bit more next week and a little bit of the differences there. And so Mary takes her first physical journey before Jesus is born and she goes to her relatives, Elizabeth. And in the midst of that, Elizabeth agrees with and enforces the blessing of God on Mary's life to be the one to carry the Son of God. In fact, verse 45, right before we get to our song, says, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill what he has spoken to her. She says, basically, blessed are you because you accepted what God called you to do. And upon that declaration, we have this beautiful song of praise. So Mary internally moves from anxiety to acceptance, and then that third step is she moves to adoration. Complete love and devotion and praise of her God. Verse 46 says, and we're just going to read this whole psalm, and then we're going to come back and break down a little bit of it about what exactly the blessing is and what she's praising him for, and then I'm going to ask you a simple question at the end of this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies Lord. Now don't get caught up on the word soul there. She's not talking about it, but she's talking about the entirety of her being, all that she is, inwardly, outwardly, completeness magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. He has done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of His heart. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering His mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as He spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed there with her about three months. And she returned to her home. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. I love that opening phrase because it is the desire of our hearts to praise the name of the Father, 
of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit with all that we are. We exist to magnify the Lord, to glorify God, to give praise and honor to His name. I also want just for a moment to talk about what that word means in this context. Because what happens sometimes is we, we hear all these illustrations out there and people talk about different words and what they kind of mean. And, and we, we fail to recognize what it means to magnify, to glorify, to praise the Lord. There's a great comparison of this uh, made by uh, Pastor John Piper in the 80s. And what he says is that when we hear the word magnify, for a lot of us, we think of magnifying as taking a magnifying glass or a microscope and making something smaller, bigger for us to see. And so when you think about when you're in science class and you've got a cell on a, on a slide and you put it under the microscope and you look at it, or they use electron microscopes now, or, or even, you know, I remember... Um, Back grandparents pulling out a magnifying glass and using it to read and using something or, or we think about even magnifying on our electronic devices now, accessibility ratings of being able to make words huge on there, that we're taking something small and making it larger for us to see it better. That's not what is meant biblically about magnifying the Lord. There is no way that we are taking something smaller and making it bigger. What it is, is he compares it to the magnification that we do with a telescope when we take something huge that we cannot comprehend and we're able to see it at a distance far off and magnify it to our eye so that we're able to take something far off and distant and huge and examine it here and now and display it for those around. So you think about something like the Hubble telescope that sends back images of things that we never could have imagined seeing. And he says, our job as believers is to take the wonders and the truths and the goodness and the greatness of our God and to bring something so massively huge and good and distant. And distant, I don't mean distant necessarily, I mean different than we are. And to give the world a glimpse of the power and the goodness of the God that we serve. My whole being wants to magnify the Lord. There are three reasons that I see in this text. And there are probably many, many more. But three reasons that I see in this text that she is magnifying who God is, what he has done. His presence with her. First of those is he's, she's magnifying the Lord because he is with her. Verse 48 says, he has looked with favor on his servant. One of the things that I love about this particular passage is that it reflects um, one of my favorite um, Psalms, a psalm that I read a lot, read a lot, particularly at funerals, but but it means much more than that. And that's Psalm 23, because it reflects the personal nature of that psalm. So when you think about that psalm, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. It uses personal pronouns a lot. Well, here Mary talks about what God has done for her. She starts with my soul, but then she says, because of me. Because the Almighty One has done great things for me. She repeats over and over this idea that God has seen me. Has understood me. There's this use of the word seen in our 
world. That means to look beyond just a visual, hey, I see you now, to being seen, being understood, being looked at, being valued. And Mary here is seen by the Lord God. And it's not just the presence of being seen. It's the presence that he's going to walk with her through this. What I think is fascinating, what I think is awesome about this particular song is that the circumstances of Mary have not changed one bit. She still is having a difficult conversation with Joseph. She still is ostracized by her community. She is still going to be uh, somebody whose reputation is going to be ruined. She is still going to be poor without any real means of, of getting more money. All those circumstances of her life are exactly the same. Or worse, at by day by day because of the word getting out and all those opportunities leaving. And yet, because the Lord is with her, because His presence is there, her soul magnifies the Lord. Again, remind me of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my souls. But then there's that part that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And it's that next phrase that is so important. And for some reason, when I was a child, I skipped over that phrase because I love the rod and staff. I love the pictures there. But in between your rod and your staff, they comfort me, is just a simple little phrase that makes all the difference in the world. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Reminds us that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in in life, that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we have become part of God's family, He has promised us the Spirit will be with us. His presence is with us. And so we can do any circumstance because He is with me. She praises Him because of His presence. Then she praises him for who he is and almost gives us the the outline of the gospel in the midst of this. She talks about the fact that he is holy. And yes, that means perfect, but it means whole, complete, set apart. It reminds us that God is holy in this thing because it reminds us that he is not someone who will do evil, that will do bad, that whatever he has brought into her life, whatever he has allowed into her life, although it might not be good from the outside, this particular case of her, of him bringing this into her life, it is for her good, it is for her benefit, it is for the plan that he has worked out, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And she knows that he is good in what he's doing. He's also merciful. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why his son is coming. The plan is being laid out for Jesus to take care of us. And he is mighty. You see, the entirety of the gospel is kind of wrapped up in that because we serve a holy God that because of his holiness has to deal with our sin. And if he were just a holy God, without love and mercy and grace as a part of his character, he could deal with our sin by wiping us off the face of the earth. And he has every right to do that. We have a merciful God, though, 
who looks at our sin and wants to do something about it, wants to take care of it in some way, wants to give us an opportunity to have that sin washed away. But that doesn't work if he's not able to do anything about it. And he is a mighty God who is completely able. And so a holy God who must deal with our sin and a merciful God who wants to give us a possible way not to have to have the punishment of our sins be laid upon us is a mighty God who's sending his son to pay the penalty for our sin. My soul magnifies the Lord who is holy and merciful and mighty. And she also gives him praise and glory. Because of what he continually does. Past, present, and future. I'm just looking and, um, and I didn't write all these down. I didn't want to give you all these. Just kind of spout them out and say them. But the number of allusions to the Old Testament in this passage is amazing. And so when I, when I look just at the cross-reference footnotes that aren't even exhaustive in my Bible that I'm looking at right now, you've got 1 Samuel chapter 2 reference, Psalm 35, Habakkuk chapter 3. You have Psalm 89, you've got Psalm 71, Psalm 126, Leviticus 20, Leviticus 22, 1 Chronicles 16, Psalm 30, Psalm 103, Psalm 100, Psalm 89. Again and again and again. She is referencing back to what God has done for His people. He has toppled the mighty. He has exalted the lowly. He has taken care of His people. And then she gets to the end and she says, and He's going to continue to do that and to fulfill the promises that He made to His people. All the way back, it says in verse 55, to Abraham and his descendants, Forever. We're in a time that's really strange and it's easy to get anxious about all that's happening about us and around us. And the truth is that we live in a Christmas Advent season that is going to be different than any we've ever had. And perhaps the, the vaccines start rolling out and we begin to see some, some, some movement there and numbers start going down. But amidst of this season, we need to realize it doesn't matter the circumstances of our lives that surround us. That if we trust in and surrender to the Lord, accepting what he's called us to do and move into a place where we are adoring him for it, we know that his presence is with us and it will guide us through any moment. So here's my question for you. Here's how I want to end today. I just want to ask you the simple question. What is it in your life that you need to move from anxiety to acceptance? And maybe it's the same thing or maybe it's something different. What is it in your life that you need to move from acceptance to adoration? Without the circumstances of your life changing. I'm not saying, well, if God would take this away, I could really move into acceptance and adoration. I'm talking about here and now and what is true and what is right. Like right now, as this season of Christmas approaches, what is it in your mind, in your life that you need to say, no matter if my circumstances change tomorrow or not, I am going to accept them and I'm going to adore the Lord who is working in the midst of it. What is it in your life that you need to move from anxiety to acceptance, to adoration. Let's pray together. 
Lord, I'm thankful for the joy that you have given us in knowing that you are a God who takes care of us no matter what. And so, Lord, we pray that today you will help us in our lives, in those areas where the circumstances of our lives may be making us anxious or worried or concerned, Lord, that in these moments that you would grant us just the ability to accept our circumstances and where we are and who we are. And that we would move to that face of adoring you in the midst of them, giving praise to you in the midst of it. Like Paul and Silas in jail, singing praises to your name despite their circumstances. And Lord, that in the midst of it, we remember that you are with us, that you are good, that you are holy and merciful and mighty. And Lord, that you have our and will continue to work things out for your people called according to your purpose, for our good, for the sake of your name and the spread of your kingdom. Give us the ability, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, Lord, to just rest in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.